Welcome to Slaking Thirst, a podcast that's all about bringing the thirst deep within our hearts for love and communion to the heart of Christ, a divine heart, who is seeking our love and communion in return. The hope is that the two thirsts would meet and both thirsts would be slaked. Some of you are my parishioners. Some of you I've journeyed with. Some of you I've never seen before. So, hello. Those of you who don't know me, as Jen said, I'm Father Ryan Mann. If you, if you go according to the magazine, Northeast Ohio Live magazine, I was installed a pastor in May. Uh, I wasn't aware of that, but I'm, I'm aware of being installed in August, so uh, I hope there's not another parish I've been neglecting and I'm not aware of it. But I'm uh, at St. Basil the Great in Brecksville, and uh, I've known Jen for almost 18 years, I think, and uh, I've known Jeff for a while, and uh, it's, pretty, it's pretty awesome. I was here last year. The same topic was given to me, and the way my the way I work for talks is, uh, I just I just what I don't think about the topic till I'm usually driving to the event. I have some thoughts <laughs> I want to talk about, and then I just weave those in eventually. So, um, uh, but as back here, as soon as I walked in, I, there's a few things I want to say before we jump into the topic, which is redemptive suffering. I really like what Jen was reading from Kimberly Hahn. First off. You're in a dangerous place. You ever disagree with a Han in the Catholic world? You know, like people are like, "Who are you?" You're like, "I'm sorry, I don't know what I'm saying." But I do want to say this: if you don't trust God with an area in your life, hearing that's not going to help. It may, for you, have actually be heard as a shaming experience. Like, so just trust already. See, we read you the words that say He's good. Why are you still struggling? He loves you. You should be fine already. Like, everyone else is just fine. You have a real big problem. Why don't you try harder? If that at all is a familiar movement in you, first thing I want to tell you is this, is in the 4th century, there is a heresy condemned in the church called the Pelagian heresy. The gist of it is try harder. Our trust is not in your effort or mine. Our hope for the world is not that you and I are going to work really hard and get it right. Our hope is in the merciful love of Jesus. That's what our hope is in. And so while Kimberly Hahn is articulating an objective truth, God is good. He does only permit things that are going to make you shine like the stars in the sky. It's also true that there is a subjective or personal journey to that, and that if you're on a healing retreat, your personal journey got clogged at some point. I don't know if any of you felt the vulnerability of even signing up for or willing to go on a healing retreat. If you notice, that's why there's a certain gender out naming another one in the room. It's It's because, ladies, my sisters in Christ, you're way better at vulnerability than we are. Both neurologically, by the way, there's a way of the structure of the brain between emotions and verbal that men have a bigger space between the two, so it actually takes us more effort in figuring out what we're feeling and how to communicate it. But then also experientially, not every girl who cries has the same experience of a boy who cries in school, on a sports team, with friends, family. And so there's a whole cultural milieu forming us that sometimes even outside of our memories 
But nonetheless, there's a vulnerability required in saying, uh, I can get up in front of people and tell them Jesus is real, he loves them, he's good, he rose, I can give, it, I can give explanations, but there's places in your heart, there's parts of your story that are like outside of that truth. And that's embarrassing and awkward, especially if you play the role in your family as the church one. Or you play the role at your parish that you actually actually work on the parish. That's awkward. (laughs) Or if you wear a Roman collar, it's even weirder. (laughs) But there's this place in you that is very scary. And fear isn't the deepest part of it. Pain is. You're only afraid of places that have been hurt. And so when your vulnerability was seen, it got hurt somehow. And that wound and pain is real, as you've been learning this weekend. And it can get triggered by the weirdest things. That's why one of the greatest things Jesus does is bestow on upon us a safe place. A place where you can be seen in your vulnerability and reverenced as an unrepeatable image of God. And that reverence bestows upon you a place where you can actually step into the light. That's why so many people in the Gospels are constantly pouring out to him. Because like, here's someone who I can be safe with. I don't have to pretend with this man who happens to be God. And so one of the great voices in the American church for helping us do this is Dr. Bob Schutz with his book, Be Healed, which is what this retreat's based on. But one of the things he's masterful about is never pushing into someone's heart and their story, but rather giving them a space where they feel so loved, they would want to share it. And now here's St. Paul at every wedding. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not brood over injury. It isn't jealous. It doesn't boast. It's the heart of Jesus is so kind and patient towards you. He has no expectations that by tomorrow morning you got your act together finally. Because after all, you went on a weekend. (laughs) But you and I have that expectation. That's one way I told you we're going to tell, we told Jesus, like, I'm going to not fake it. Like, I don't know about you, but there's all sorts of times in the Gospels where Jesus, people are encountering Jesus in the way that you don't want to encounter Jesus. I'll name a few. Thanks for asking. (laughs) You don't want to meet him when you've just been caught in the very act of adultery. Maybe a day later, a week later, when you can figure out your story a little bit, and you can go like, this is what happened, okay? It was, you know, $4 martini night and whatever. Like, you can have reasons to give him. Not half-dressed, dragged right in front of him. And notice what he does. The last time she was alone with the man, she was being used. Now he's alone with the man and he's protecting her. 
restoring her dignity by showing her she's still worthy of reverence and then setting her free. But first he showed her her dignity. How about you're the man who's blind? You don't really want to meet Jesus then either because in that culture, being blind was seen as a curse. Now they started hearing, oh, he heals them, but I've kind of got this curse thing going on. Or how about a leper? Or how about you're that person with a reputation? Or maybe you're Zacchaeus. Maybe you've been, um, the Eucharist is right behind me. I want to be reverent. Uh, you've been a meanie face <laughs> and extorted people. You've lied to them. You took their mom's last few dollars they had so that you could get that new suit. And everyone in town knows that new suit and car you drive in is because you extorted everyone. And you're Zacchaeus. And you climb up a tree to see this man, Jesus, who you heard is actually forgiving sinners. And you're like, could this be true? And then he looks at you and says, Zacchaeus, come down. Tonight I must have dinner with you. I.e., I want to spend time with you. What changes these people's lives is not moral teachings, but profound encounters because they can't hide anymore. They're vulnerable and vulnerability, human vulnerability, when it meets Jesus' love, is the most powerful place in the world. Human vulnerability, meeting Jesus' love, is the most powerful place in the world. Because, like, people change then. Any idea how hard it is to change? People change. How? When I'm seen in the places that I spend a lot of time hiding. What do we hide? How do we hide? Sometimes we hide by just giving off an air that I'm tough and you can never get to know me. Screw you. If you're maybe under the age of 50, you might know uh, the, the, the acronym RBF. It refers to certain women's faces when they're just resting still. <laughs> It's an error that don't mess with me, don't talk to me. Stay away. Sometimes we hide behind being funny. It's one of my favorites. I can tell it. I was a professional comedian before I was in the seminary. And I can turn a joke and a phrase in almost any setting so that I don't have to have a moment of intimacy with someone. That's way of hiding, way of distracting. Now, not everybody's worthy of knowing everything about you, so that's, these aren't always bad, right? But when we use them and get addicted to our masks that we don't even know how to be vulnerable, that's when they become problematic. Maybe you're the smart person, always having the right answer, the great church quote. Maybe you're the spiritual one. Oh, I'm going to love to, I'll just pray for you later because I know it's so, but really in your heart you're just like, I don't like this person's story. I just can't do this right now. Maybe you're the worker. Right? Like, can I do anything for you? Can I set things up, tear things down, take some trash out? What do you even need? Because I don't want to just sit here and just be with everyone. Then I'd just be like everyone else. Would that mean that I'm just like everyone else? Well, then no one will say, I won't be special. I won't be good. I won't be loved. I can't prove myself then. What will that mean? These are very sacred places in you and in me that we have habits of treating these places very differently than Jesus does. And that's a big reason why we don't experience the beautiful, transforming power of Him.
is because we're not joining with Jesus in his mission of healing and restoration in our own hearts. We break apart from him. And so he looks on the places in you and says, I'd love to be there with you. And we say, that's the very place I hate most about my life. And so this divorce, this division, this separation between the divine bridegroom and our hearts is what creates loneliness, isolation. And then we feel so insecure and weak and lonely. Then we try to pretend we're fine and we create all these different mechanisms to look so strong. And then when someone doesn't like our masks, do you know what we do? We defend it with all the fury we can muster. Because if they don't like our masks, then what will be left? And then we judge them. You know what their problem is. We call people, did you see that? Or you get a new social media account and go to town. One of the biggest masks I've been seeing in the past year or so is the political mask. People love it. They love their political mask. Right? You just say the word vaccine. Don't say it in my household. My family will go nuts. People will throw things at dinner. They'll leave immediately. Or like, I, I sometimes am trying to say the word, ah, I trumped you, and I say the word Trump, I'm like, oh gosh. Because you just, you just don't know how it's going to go over. But I'm like, no, I mean it like in the sense, I want to, okay. And so, you know, you know. But we, we're tiptoeing. We're so on edge. We don't know what to, we don't know where can I be vulnerable? Where can I be utterly sincere and be loved and not destroyed? The church is meant to be this place. That's why it's so demonic when even the church fights. Because when we fight, what it sounds like is Jesus is no longer with us. We just look like a bunch of knuckleheads. But he says, I'm with you always. Yes, in the tabernacle. Yes, in the sacraments. Yes, in the scriptures and the church teaching, of course. But also deep inside your heart through the Holy Spirit, in the very places that are walled off, right? We learned this today, I think. You walled off. There's pain and wounds. Then there's lies and agreements, vows and judgments. All so we don't have to feel the pain. All so we don't feel so little. I'm a priest of a very big parish. I'm literally outnumbered all day long, and I live there. I feel very small most of the time. My finance council are some of the most brilliant men and women in all of Cleveland. Felt so little my first year there especially. And one time I had to ask them, uh, what's this phrase CAPEX you keep saying? And they're like, oh, Father, that's capital expenditures. And I said, that's a great phrase. What's that one mean? <laughs> they're like buildings and stuff. And I'm like, sounds good. <laughs> Up until four years ago, I thought financially being in the red was good and being in the black was bad. <laughs> Because black in my world means death, and red is blood, and that's life. <laughs> and I found it's the other way. And then someone's like, ever heard of a Black Friday sale? It blew my mind. <laughs> there are times where you feel little. There's times where you feel overwhelmed, because life can be overwhelming. Maybe you feel small in the face of diseases. Maybe you feel small in the face of like, the, the plans you wanted for your family, and they're not panning out, so you just feel so small. But you know, the, the church... And the kingdom and God are for little ones. 
They're for those who are willing to see these moments not as the most dangerous time in their life, but as the most holy. That these places in our hearts and these situations are where Jesus loves being our big brother. And he's a good big brother, not a bad one. He says in Matthew 18, they say, who's the greatest in the kingdom? And he brings a little child over, it says, and says, unless you turn and become like little children, you can't enter in. Can you think about that? Not that you're not greater. You can't enter in. Now, the little children, that phrase you brought a little child over, I don't know about you, but in my imagination, I used to think like an eight-year-old. But I found out in Greek, it means like a two-year-old. He brought a toddler over and said, unless you turn and become like this kid, you can't enter in. What is that kid? Open. What does Jesus say in another part? Ephatha, be opened. Pope Benedict says, that sums up almost all of Jesus' ministry, trying to open up the human heart and spirit to God that's been closed off due to sin, pain, and injustice. Why do we want to open? Because we're scared. Why are we scared? Because we've been hurt. But when Jesus sees you're hurt, he has mercy, compassion. So that wasn't my talk, but that was like the, you know, a little preamble. We'll just give a few little things on the talk now. <laughs> that was on my heart, so I went with it. Um, redemptive suffering. This is a really big topic, and it's, talk about feeling small. I'm way ill-equipped to talk about some of the, the fullness of what the church means here. It's, there's a sense in which we participate in Jesus in saving and redeeming and healing the whole world, bringing it back to the Father, and I don't know how it all works. I read the document that John Paul II wrote on this three times, and I didn't understand any of it except found a lot of cool quotes. But I didn't understand what it all meant. I had no idea how it went together. But what I want to share tonight on a retreat setting is a little bit of what it could mean for you in your life because the mystery is big, but there may be a sliver that can shine out on you. Jesus does not heal us, redeem us, or restore us out of the human condition, but through it. He's not interested in taking us out of being human, but entering more deeply into your femininity and masculinity. He's trying to take you deeper into your experiences, not have you escape the pain. He's not a divine Advil. Okay. Sometimes it's put this way. Christianity is not the salvation from the flesh. It's the salvation of the flesh. Your humanity as male and female is not the problem. It's the blessing. It's the gift. But in our culture, we're given really two options. You can avoid suffering at all costs, no sacrifice, never want to feel discomfort no matter what, always pleasure all the time. And behind that is really the notion that suffering is meaningless. There's no purpose. It doesn't lead you anywhere. It doesn't accomplish anything. It's just bad. It just hurts. It's just dumbly there. You're just suffering. You're just, that's that. Just get rid of it. Avoid it as quick as you can. Or there's another side of our culture that has a weird masochism. Pain is good. After all, no pain, no pain. There's this weird celebration of suffering and pain. Go to, find people who go to the gym every day of the week. 
Now, working out is not evil, right? Healthy is good. But, but there can be motives that are not good behind it. You know, I know several women who they run a heck of a lot. They run marathons. And one of the reasons they run is they like the pain of it because it's a pain that they can control. The other suffering in their life is so out of their control and reckless and hectic and chaotic. Here's one that I can just keep pushing myself no matter what. And then, of course, chemicals are released. They make you feel good. But there's like an affection for the pain. World religions have to deal with pain. Buddha and Buddhism is all about suffering, the avoidance of it. So their whole purpose of Buddhism is to create a certain set of meditations that would get you to remove all your sufferings, right? And they do this by fundamentally getting rid of all your desire because he realized, oh, desire is one of the hearts of suffering. So different than Christianity where Jesus says, what are you looking for? What are you seeking? What do you desire? He's crying out, sweating, bleeding. He dies on a cross, suffering. There's the Stoic philosophy of ancient worlds where their whole approach was pain was good, systematically choosing it, and developing real strong disciplines. They exalted it. Or New Age spiritualities. What do they try to do with suffering? Well, goal is knowledge or power. How? Usually to avoid it or be in control of it in some way. Christianity is weird because we're in between the avoid it at all costs and it's good no matter what. Although your grandparents might not have made it sound that second one. They might have made it sound like it's good no matter what. Offer it up for pagan babies. They'll never know Jesus. <laughs> well, I just my boyfriend just broke up with me, and it's hard, and I'm sad. I don't want to offer that up. I want to grieve. Right? Notice how different Jesus is. He enters in, he draws near, and he has compassion on people who are hurting. Gospel last week was the Good Samaritan. The litmus test of a disciple was one who bends down and draws near with availability to someone who's suffering and does what they can to bring about healing and restoration. The mark of a non-disciple was someone who walked by and ignored their suffering. So for Jesus to have a heart for people who are suffering, to care about them in that, is the mark of a disciple. It's called mercy, compassion, tenderness. We want to be that way. We want to have a certain availability and if we're going to have it on others, love your neighbor as your, love your neighbor as your, if you did that, you'd be really mean to me. So please don't, because I know a lot of you are mean to yourselves. So please don't love your neighbor as yourself, because if you said to people what you say to yourself in your mind, you wouldn't have many friends, neither would I. But Jesus wants us to, because he's hoping we actually at least are caring and taking care of our own hearts, bodies, minds, and souls. So the goal when it comes to suffering, what Jesus does and then what Christianity and the church do is it acknowledges that the restoration and transformation we seek happens through suffering, not avoiding it and not celebrating it, but through the suffering. John Paul II says this phrase that God saved the world through the instrument of human suffering, namely Jesus's. So you have this huge problem. All the world is outside the Father's love. And he says the Father sends Jesus into the world and saves us through his suffering, death, and resurrection to show us that the suffering places in your heart and in your life are more like trailheads than they are like dead ends. They're the beginning of the journey to explore and go into. 
Not the place where, well, I guess that's over now. Historically, we know the cross is a specific place, Calvary. But the Bible operates both historically and poetically all at once. And on the poetic level, the cross stands for the place in your life that you said, well, that's life. What are you going to do? Some people suck. Eh, everyone's hurting. Who am I? It's the place that we just say, this hurts, this makes no sense, it's confusing, meaningless, it's dark, bad, awful. Biblically, you'd say, God forsaken. Put your hands up, you go, hey, I got bills to pay, family needs me, I got things to do, oh well. That's the cross without Jesus. Where does Jesus go? He goes to the God forsaken place. With a hammer and chisel? No with a heart broken open, with a prayer on his lips, with a longing in his heart saying, right up here, I thirst. I'm thirsting to be with you in your God-forsaken place. I'm thirsting to have communion with you where you've only no loneliness, isolation, meaninglessness, and confusion, where you have no hope, where it feels like you're on that hamster wheel and nothing changes. That's where I want to be with you. That's why that Friday became a good Friday. That's the redemptive suffering aspect of it. That which was awful, bad, and meaningless in Christ became a good Friday. Because the very place that was awful and bad is now the place where all the Father's love and healing is poured out. That very place. So is it bad? Well, it's hard to claim bad anymore. It was hard, it was awful, I wish it didn't happen, but bad? I don't know if Jesus is in there. Is it bad? I don't know. If he's healing and restoring and awakening hope, joy, peace, and love, is it bad? As we press into these things, we begin to learn how it becomes redemptive for others as well. My dad and I, thank God at this point in his life, my dad is the best he's ever been. But he wasn't always that way. He was agnostic Jew growing up. He was a... His mom died when he was 24. He never really dealt with that. He kind of had a physically abusive dad. Money, 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 trying, money, trying, trying, money, trying, trying more money, all these things. And um, I remember I was in the seminary. And it was a particularly painful time for my dad and I. And I kept telling Jesus, how will I be able to tell people you're the redeemer of the world if you never change my dad? He continues to do the same things over and over again. How am I supposed to tell people you're a healer, you're a redeemer, and my dad keeps doing X, Y, and Z? Thanks be to God, he converted on my dad's godfather. And like I said, he's the best he's ever been. But I said that prayer after he was already baptized even. And I remember loud as could be, Jesus said, you have it backwards. I don't want to change your dad, I want to change you. And through you, I will then heal your dad. We're so busy pointing fingers, we forget we got three pointing back at ourselves. He, he wanted to take me on a deep excavating journey into my heart, into my story, so that I could do what I'm now doing the last few years, showing my dad that there's someone in this world who knows everything about him and can still be kind to him. 
And it's really blowing my dad's mind. He doesn't know what to do with this. Because <laughs> it's through me now that that's happening. That's redemptive suffering. I want to tell another story. We'll call this person. They gave me permission to tell their story. Uh, I told them I'd change the name. So we'll call. Um, are there any Monicas here? Okay. How about any, any Gertrudes? <laughs> Not many Gertrudes these days. I, w- I met with a woman named Gertrude, okay? And um, Gertrude had a relationship where uh, her dad was a passionate man, yelled a lot at home, kind of, kind of fiery temper. And she had struggled in her own life at different times with promiscuity, sometimes uh, pornography, masturbation, different times drinking, Nothing over the top, but there were seasons of her life where that would spring up here and there. But overall, she was trying to do good. She went on retreats on occasion, trying to grow in her spiritual life, walk with God. But she just kept realizing how her heart would cling to people like so desperately. She could feel how much she wanted from people. And it just began as she got a little older, just be like, this just seems compulsive and intense. And she was praying, 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 and she could get to the point to where she knew that she was feeling hurt, anger, and shame at some memories from her dad, but she didn't know what to do with them. Well, as she began to do that, she began to know there's a sheet in your folder, by the way, you could look at, but she began to ask these questions. In this panicked anger, what belief do I have in there? What belief is active in this distressing emotion? She had these beautiful answers. It was, I can't show that I'm weak. I'm not good enough. I must be bad. These were all wounds. The reason they're wounds is they're not God's original plan in the Garden of Eden. That's what we were created for. Anything that doesn't correspond to that is a wound. It's something less than God's plan. We were never meant to think of ourselves as, if I'm weak, I'm bad. I'm not enough. I'm not good. She began to pray with that. She asked one of the next questions on your sheet in your folder, which is, Jesus, would you show me the root of this? Where do these beliefs, where do these feelings come from? And she was taken back to being like four years old on the way to the zoo, and she was crying. She couldn't remember why she was crying. But her dad's like, what are you crying for? You're fine. We're going to the zoo. Get over it. Now, if you're a parent, you're like, oh my gosh, how many times do I say that to my kid? I need to text them right now. Okay, That's not how that works. It doesn't mean every time someone says it that way. But for her, that was her experience. And in that moment, that little girl just froze. And in that little girl had this belief, there's no one there for me unless I act perfectly. If I'm good, if I act good, then I can be loved. But if I have needs and desires, wants and fears... I won't be loved. I will be shamed and mocked and hurt. So this older memory was linked to this younger memory. And as she was there, she said, Jesus, what do you want to do for me? What do you want to show me? Now, at this point, some people can see images of Jesus in the memory. She could. So she she imagined Jesus and she saw him coming to her playfully, tenderly, kind of being like, as like a little kid also almost, just saying like, why are you crying? Like very playfully asking. And she's like, my dad yelled at me. He's like, oh, that stinks. And she just felt so much like cared for and loved. She wasn't alone. And then this Jesus got like bigger. And he was like an adult version of Jesus. 
And uh, he's like, I'm always here for you. And she felt her cling to him and say, please don't ever leave me. And what was beautiful was she said she felt disdain towards this part of her heart. It was needy. Please don't ever leave. And she felt this, ugh. And this is all we were working together. And as we're praying into that, I said, pause right there. That's the most important thing you've said. Let's go back. And she began to just notice, I have, I have a judgment on my neediness. It's bad to need love. It's bad to need care. I can't be needy. And so we prayed into that. And Jesus went from walking away and her tugging on him to turning, picking her up and putting her in his arms. She began to experience in her need, she experienced more love, not less. And she had to repent of her self-condemnation. I judge myself, my needs differently than Jesus does. The fruit of this, she began to feel peace, freedom, joy. And the beginning stages of wanting to bless and forgive her dad. Redemptive suffering. She had to go into the pain, into the shame, into the fear, into the wounds, into the memories. She had to sacrifice time and energy on this thing that wasn't going to be productive, get her a job, get a promotion, make friends like her more. It wasn't going to do any of that for her. She had to press into these painful places, but not alone with Jesus. It was always done in prayer. And the fruit of it for her was this beautiful recovery of this place in her heart that she had judged as bad, awful, and what she discovered was it's the very place Jesus was loving the most and where his grace could flow most powerfully in and through her. Some people don't have images of Jesus, but as they're there and they're praying, Jesus, what are you showing me? What do you want to do? Where were you? What's going on? They can just feel pain released from their body. They can feel their shoulders relaxed. Their jaws not as tight. They seem to breathe with greater ease. They get the goosebumps. Ah, oh, a change is happening. How? They engaged the pain and suffering with Jesus. They went to where they were hurting the most and opened it to him. Ephatha, be opened. They opened it to him. Human vulnerability plus the tender love of Jesus, the most powerful place. Some people get a word. You know, they're going there and all of a sudden... They just get like a word. And by a word here, we don't mean just like the word chair. <laughs> Sometimes, but like a phrase. You know, they get a message. I'll say, I love you always. You are precious. You make me laugh. I want to stare at you forever. Sometimes people get other memories, right? Praying with Jesus is a painful memory. All of a sudden, you may hear a song. And you think it's a distraction first. Whatever, you have focus. Then you wait, what song is that? And it's like, I'll be there for you. These five words I swear to you. Like Jesus sings Bon Jovi. And you're like, huh, that's funny. And you're like, oh, those lyrics are, pro oh, they're doing something in me. In that very place that felt alone, we begin to sense communion. Redemptive suffering is a suffering that moves from isolation into communion. It's not one that goes away necessarily. Sometimes it does. 
but it's one that moves from isolation into communion. I now know Jesus. He is with me here. Now you can reread St. Paul. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That's not a willpower statement. That's a man who's in intimacy with Jesus. So the places where you've been hurting the most in your life that may carry shame, abandonment, all sorts of wounds, maybe walled off with anger, maybe you hide behind self-righteousness, maybe whatever it may be. These places are trailheads leading us not to be fixed, but to the Father. And sometimes that's the place I need to check myself the most. Am I going to the Lord because I want to be fixed? Or am I going to the Lord so that I can be with the Father? Only one of those is heaven. Jesus never came and said, I can't wait to fix you. That's not love. That sees you as a problem and tries to fix you. You're a broken down car in that model of Christianity. and We can't wait to get you working again. But when Jesus comes near, he says, I want to walk you all the way to the Father so you can see the truth of who you are, who he is, and why he has what Kimberly Hahn said, this plan and this thing happening in your life. As we engage our hearts in this journey, we do open up more to trusting that these tough times, these difficult times, I know the Lord. I can actually be with him there. He hasn't left me because I've done this five, six, six, six million times in my life, and I know he's there. But if we haven't done that journey enough times, it's just going to be a theological correct answer on a test that we're still taking from our high school selves. And so Jeff's going to come back up here and play a little song for us. But as he does, I'm just going to lead us in a little prayer. And then I'm exposed to the Blessed Sacrament. And we're going to begin our night of sacraments. The beauty of sacraments, right, is that in our faith, Jesus isn't just an idea. Right? We don't have just a talk. We have the one we were speaking about. He was physically present 2,000 years ago, and he stays physically present with us because he doesn't want to redeem us out of the human condition, but in it and through it. And so I just want to give you, a, invite you, if you'd like to, to close your eyes. Say a prayer to the Holy Spirit real quick, and I'll just guide you through a little meditation. Holy Spirit, we invite you upon all, every one of us. You are not a thing, but you are a person, and you are actually the very communion, the bond between the Father and Son. And so soak us, saturate us in that love, that dance, that ecstasy, that joy, that tenderness. I want you to imagine that uh, you're with Jesus and the apostles. And if you don't, if your imagination doesn't work, you can just soak in the words still. It's okay. But imagine you're walking along the road. You see the Sea of Galilee out to your left. And the grass is about thigh high around you as you're walking. It's a partly cloudy day, but the sun is warm, but there's a breeze off the lake. 
As you're walking, there's a carefreeness. You all are just following Jesus and you know he's leading, he's going to get you somewhere, but you don't know exactly when or where and he doesn't seem to be in a rush, so you're just all kind of walking with him down this little trail. You can hear some of the apostles laughing, teasing each other, and some are having very impressive debates about the past town, what the events meant. And Jesus kind of stops and looks at you and gestures for you to get close to him, and you and him can start walking. And as he gestures, it didn't seem like you're in trouble. It didn't seem too intense, just like a warm, hey, come here a second. As you're walking, following, you can feel the breeze still in the air, but the warmth of the sun, and you and him are kind of walking off the trail, and there's this little kind of dirt area, and he sits down and invites you to sit down with him. He's picked a piece of long grass, and he's kind of playing with it as he's sitting there, one leg cocked up, the other one straight out, and he's just playing with that grass, and You're with a man who has never known an identity lie or wound. He's totally free. There's no edge or aggression. There's also no neediness or wounds. This is a man who's stronger than death and knows he's loved by the Father. And so his heart radiates out of his own flesh towards you and playing with that grass and he looks up and he just says to you very gently you know I've missed you he said I know I know you've done church stuff you've prayed you've tried so hard but feel like it's just been so long since it's been us and I really have missed you. You can see in his eyes and his warm half smile that he's not afraid of the intimacy of that comment. And as you sit there with Jesus and you can sense his heart of thirsting, longing just for to be with you more often. He says, what can I do for you? What do you desire? Allow this question to enlighten and elicit. As he says, what can I do for you? What do you need? What are you desiring? I love you. Feel free to be childlike. Be little. Vulnerable. Ask for a sign as high as the stars and as low as the depths of the sea. This is your God. And he's saying, I miss you. I love you. 
What do you desire and need? And as you share it with him, just see how he responds. Maybe not with words, but maybe his heart or his body or his eyes. Just notice how he receives your desire. He just looks at you and says, well, we should probably get back with the others, but just know that I want to come on this dirt spot with you whenever you want. I don't want to miss you. I just want to love you. And I want us together to build a life that is tender, grace-filled, and beautiful.